This is the On The Touchline Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. Want to save 10% on your next DukeTigBrand.com order? Use the promo code BROADWATER19 at checkout. D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you've listened to the show before, you know how much I love DukeTig Brand. I use their Excel notebook, I use their waterproof notebook, and absolutely swear by their products. Go to duketigbrand.com right now, D-U-K-T-I-G-Brand.com, and save 10% at checkout on your next order. From apparel to logos to coaching notebooks, Duketig Brand has got you hooked up. Duketigbrand.com, promo code BROADWATER19 at checkout. In season two, episode 21 of the On the Touchline podcast, I talked to Reed Maltby. I learned about Reed probably over a year ago, and I can't remember how I found his TEDx Cincinnati talk that is available on YouTube, but I was instantly drawn to his message. And if you're not familiar with Reed and his work, go to Coach Reed, and that's R-E-E-D dot com to learn a little bit about his background. Reed Malby is the founder of Raising Excellence, a digital and live coaching development platform for those who coach, teach, and influence children focused on developing stronger communication skills, creating highly effective learning environments, and helping coaches unlock individual, everyday excellence in their athletes. Also, if you're fascinated by the brain science that goes into um, player performance, and especially as it relates to football or soccer, uh, you're going to like what Reed has to say. And admittedly, he says that he's a nerd when it comes to those sort of things. Um and how the brain has such an impact on performance. And also for us as coaches, in terms of the words and actions that we have, how those directly impact our players. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation, and we'll get there in just a sec. This podcast is available on 12 different podcasting platforms. So places like Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, and of course, Apple Podcast. And it really would mean the world. So stop what you're doing, go to Apple Podcast right now, leave a five-star rating and a review for the show. And I genuinely appreciate everyone who has taken the time to do that thus far. So the reason that that is important is that that helps more and more people in the football and soccer community learn about this podcast and helps us continue to grow. We just went over 14,000 listens for the show, and I couldn't be more proud um, to see that number continue to go up uh, each week and every time I put a new episode out. So a sincere thanks from me to you for listening to this podcast. Also, uh, if you like what you hear, don't be afraid to share it out on social media or connect with me at SoccerCoachJB and highly active on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're on those platforms, do reach out. I would love to connect with you that way. 
And last but not least, in terms of housekeeping items, so I've included a link to the On the Touchline podcast archive website. And there on the homepage, you can actually put in your email address and receive a um, newsletter that will be coming out later this month, recapping some of the things on the show, but also other topics uh, in the game itself. So if you want to subscribe to the On the Touchline newsletter, just plug in your email address and hit submit, and you're off and running. All right, guys, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Season 2, Episode 21, and my guest, Coach Reed Maltby. Reed Maltby, thank you for taking time to be on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I've come full circle here with uh, some of the people that I really admire their work um, and the fact that I'm now having conversations with those folks as part of this podcast. And how I learned about you, Reed, was actually through um, through the, your TEDx video uh, that ended up on YouTube and also your podcast, uh, the coaching code. And I remember would be doing, you know, things around the house or, you know, uh, the to-do list that my wife might have for me or whatever. And I remember listening to that podcast going like, holy smokes, this makes so much sense. Like, why don't people get this? And why don't my fellow coaches get this? So I think it's important for, um, you know, listeners of the, the on the touchline to, to know a little bit about you and your backstory and then we'll kind of dive into, uh, you know, some of your work and, um, you know, some of the things you have going on. Sure. So it's a background, uh, born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, played, I was one of those multi-sport athletes. So I played pretty much everything under the sun. My, my dad was, uh, was, a, a an athlete growing up. So he was multi-sport as well. And he was a coach, which is why I, I ended up spending most of my childhood at fields, at football fields, at basketball courts. You know, wherever my dad, my dad took me to a lot of soccer games. He was my coach. Uh, I started concentrating on soccer only in high school and then played college soccer at Davidson College down in North Carolina. And while, uh, while I was playing soccer, I got started in a coaching at 16 years old. So sophomore in high school, already coaching. I get to college, I start dealing with injuries. So junior year, I kind of decide maybe it's time to hang it up and, uh, at the collegiate level. And I stayed with coaching. So I coached the women's club team there. And then when I graduated, I said, wow, man, I'm really enjoying this coaching. So I went back to playing, but I went back and got a master's degree in sports psychology because I wanted to be a coach for a living. And I got out of the psychology program and realized I couldn't, I didn't think I could make a living coaching because I was supposed to go get the nine to five like everybody else. So I I, I did development for 10 years while coaching on the side. And then one day my wife said, the only time you're happy is when you're on the field. So you need to do something about that. So I shifted into coaching full-time, went back and got a master's in early childhood education. And uh, between the psych and the, the early childhood, it completely changed the way I approached coaching. And like you were mentioning coaching code, that's, that's where the geekiness in me comes out is I'm, I'm really geeky about the ins and outs of the human brain and performance and how it's connected to that the software and about how we can create environments where kids are just really excelling at their best. And there's got there, there's always a tweak we can make. And so that's why I get really geeky in that, those episodes. So that's kind of the, the general background on me. 
Awesome. I remember uh, sending you a message uh, a few weeks ago and uh, had, <laughs> had talked to somebody that I was uh, working with at the time at the, the club I was a part of. And um, in his exact words, uh, you need to yell at your kids more. Um, and I, <laughs> my natural reaction was to sort of laugh, um, just because I'm, I'm probably a smart ass more than I should be. But, uh, I, I sent you that and, uh, you know, sort of said, Hey, you know, that's kind of, that's what we're dealing with. And I'm curious for you. So we live in this society where winning and, uh, you know, I almost call it blood sport sometimes where, uh, I feel like, um, you know, they're kind of sharks uh, circling a boat and they smell blood in the water and the parents and the players and that's what they want. And if you're not winning, you're not successful. And uh, maybe riff on that for a little bit in terms of um, really what should parents, what should coaches, what should players, especially in youth soccer, um, what should they be kind of dialed into and aware of? versus sort of this win at all cost mentality that we have sometimes. Well, I, I, it's, we all get caught up in that. I can remember getting caught up in that as an athlete and then as a coach and even as a parent watching my own kids. And I, I think the, the biggest thing is, is that we've, we don't know how to measure success other than results a lot of times. So we look at, the win column. We look at the bank account. We look at the stats. We look at, you know, how many sales we've made. Everything is measured on these results. And so when we got into youth sports, that was the one way that we could say my kids is success and I'm a success or my coach, my kids coach is a success or the club is a, is a success is by that, that win column. And the problem is, is winning doesn't always, it doesn't, is not always an indicator of success. It's not always an indicator of achieving a certain level of performance. We put our kids in sports. At least I, I went into sports for this reason, and, and I know my parents put me in for it, and this is why I put my kids in. I, I, we were in sports to learn life skills, to have positive role models, to learn, uh, you know, to, to instill positive values in us. And so if we're measuring by winning wins, then none of those actually a factor because you can cheat and win <laughs> you can you know you can pick your biggest facts the strongest and win so the problem is is we we began defining excellence as success and excellence and success are two very different things excellence is when kids or anybody when you do the very best that you can with the skills you've been given in that moment and the beauty is is tomorrow i might have acquired a new skill i might be a little bit better than i was yesterday and so my my excellence tomorrow is going to be a little bit different uh and so uh, it boils down to, for me, the easiest thing that we can say to people is stop, don't count the wins. You've got to count the steps along the way. You've got to count the progress. And they say, well, the first thing people will say is, how do I measure that? How do I measure that? And, and my big one is compete at all times. If we're teaching our kids to compete at all times rather than win at all costs, you will see success in those kids because you will see it in the way they compete. You will see it in this geekiness over mastery. You will see it in them achieving these small steps. You will see it in the fact that they want to show up every day and play their hardest. You will see it in the sweat. And that's really where we need to start measuring it. And so uh, I think if we started measuring sports in that compete at all times mentality versus that win at all costs mentality, we'd still get, we'd get better results, but we, and we, as parents, we'd still be able to measure something. I know that, uh, 
you know, I, I, I've had numerous chats with uh, parents and try to educate them as best I can uh, as a coach of a team. I always feel like I come up a little bit short and I always feel like, uh, you know, uh, what I want in sort of that aspirational environment of how parents should act and how I want my players to act and behave. And, you know, our words and actions really should match one another. And that's uh, just a, my own personal philosophy and try, and how I try to live my life anyways. But um, I guess get really practical for me, if you can read in terms of like, what should parents know and what should parents do? Because, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the argument and the pushback that I've heard from parents, especially the ones that I've worked with is, yeah, that, that's all well and fine, but I'm also paying a lot of money to be here. And, you know, I expect, you know, those wins and losses or those wins uh, in particular. And um, how do we sort of counterbalance that, um, you know, uh, is it sort of a, a practical measure? Sure. So when I look at my kids with the whole compete at all times mentality, what I see is um, one is, I just, I, I saw, I put a quote out the other day and, and it really, it really stuck with a lot of people that winning, winning is a great deodorant because it covers up the stink. Right. And mm. so what you see is, is when you're winning, everything's great. And so you, you judge your kid and you judge a team and they're all in good moods and they're all excited to be at practice and the coaches treating the kids well, and the kids are all getting along because they're winning. But the moment they lose, there's your barometer. What do they do when they lose? How do they react? How does the coach act? How do the players interact with each other? How do the players carry themselves when they lose? Because if you really want to measure their success in sports, start measuring it in those moments. Do they bounce back and, and correct mistakes that they've made and move on? Do they shake it off? Do they, do they uh, use the Draymond Green mentality that I just feel like I'm the best on the field at all times, and so I'm going to have hiccups, but I know I'm the very best possible? Do they act like spoiled brats? You know, you and I know this. I've seen adult coaches act like spoiled brats when they lose. And, and that, that's honestly right there. The biggest success we can have is when our kids lose, they pick themselves up. They think about what, what, what went well, what went wrong, and they try to retool the next time. There was recently an interview with a, with a quarterback, and they lost the game, and the quarterback blew the game. And in the interview, you know, high level, elite, paid, highly paid NFL quarterback, the, the mentality usually is to blame everybody else. My blockers didn't block for me. My receivers ran poor routes that Joey dropped the ball in the end zone three times. And that quarterback said, guys, this, on, this is on me. You did your jobs. You showed up to play today. I didn't. I wasn't crisp in my passing. I wasn't reading the defense well. I didn't stay in the pocket long enough. I didn't trust the blocking. I blew it, and I'm going to go back this week, and I'm going to bust my tail for you, and we will fix it, and we will come back next week, and I promise you I will be a better person for it. Or the famous Tim Tebow speech. You know, after they lost to Ole Miss his uh, sophomore year, his famous speech that sort of propelled him towards the Heisman. That, that mentality – wouldn't you rather say that that's winning? Wouldn't you as a parent say, oh my gosh, my kid lost today, but his, his attitude after the game, his willingness to step up and take, uh, you know, take blame for the things he did wrong and, and hold himself accountable and then say, we're going to fix this and move on. That's a win for me. So uh, for me, that's the big barometer. I'm watching my son. My son's in karate right now, and, and he gets so excited about learning the katas and about you know, the process of going through it. And he competed in a meet recently, and – uh, he was doing his kata and mid kata, I could tell by his body language, he missed something. I didn't know the kata yet, but I knew he missed something and his whole demeanor changed and he finished it. 
and he bowed and everything like that. And he held his, you know, he held himself and he didn't, he didn't cry. He didn't get upset. He didn't punch anything. He went over and he sat down with the rest of the kids and I could, I could, I could see him and you could see his mind reeling and I could see him going down that hole. And my wife leans over and she goes, is he okay? And I said, cause she could see me watching him. I said, no, he's, he's in his own head now. He messed up on his kata. I could tell by his body language, but now he's going to let it ruin the rest of his evening because he's, he's in his head. And he looked at me and all I did was give him a thumbs up and he smiled and then he took a deep breath. You could see it. And over the next five minutes, I could see him working himself back into peak performance, back into that mental state. And he went out and it was his first ever meet or first ever competition. And he took and he ended up winning in the sparring over a higher belt. And he ended up doing very well in his other kata, his, his weapons kata. And afterward, I asked him, I said, did you miss something? He says, yeah, I messed up. And dad, I was going down that hole, man. He says, I was, I, I, I was in my own head. And he says, and when you looked at me and gave me the thumbs up, he says, I, he says, I just said, you know what? I, I know this. I know the process. I've been working hard. And one minor mistake is not going to let me, uh, not going to unravel the whole night for me. That for me as a parent, that's my barometer. I don't care how many, how many medals he wins in his, the next year at, uh, at competitions. The fact he was able to self-correct and the fact he had that kind of attitude, that to me is huge. Oh, and by the way, he gave a big hug to the kid who did win in the Kata competition because they were buddies and they'd been working together. So <laughs> I don't know. Wow. I, I don't know if that helps your parents or not, but it's, it's we've got to stop looking at the win column because those are going to happen. But so are losses. And our kids have to get used to it because they're going to apply to college. 14,000 kids want to get into Harvard and they're not taking all 14,000. They're not going to say, oh, but, you know, you tried. So we'll give you a spot anyway. And we're going to apply for jobs in our lifetime. And, you know, my life just turned upside down in January and things changed for me. And if it weren't for the sports, for the coaches who taught me how to succeed in life and, and seek excellence, I don't know where I'd be. But I picked myself up and moved on. And I hope my parents look at that and go, you know what? You sports taught him that. That's how we need to start measuring it. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going through that right now um, professionally and that uh, absolutely. And it's because of sports and, um, you know, that uh, getting knocked down, but also knowing to have the resilience and the uh, the wherewithal to get back up and, and keep battling and keep fighting and, and never quitting. I love the, uh, the story about your son. And it reminds me of um, something that uh, actually came up in a recent coaching course that I did uh, last weekend that um, when athletes are able to self-correct, you know that they're on the path to being successful. And all, all it took was a thumbs up for your son to be able to self-correct and realize, you know what, I was kind of headed down a bad path. I'm going to hit the pause button, going to reset, and I'm going to do it over again. And, and maybe that's a, a good tie-in to, you know, something that uh, you've talked about uh, in the past about, uh, you know, warriors not winners and maybe explaining to, to those listening to this that might not be familiar with that uh, mantra or that mentality of, of what actually that means. Yes. And I'm, I've shifted a little bit away from that just because of some of the connotations behind the word warrior, but I, I took it from New Zealand and I took it from the sporting cultures. And so I didn't mean it from the bellicose term. I took it from more of a, you know, a, a, a resilient, um, uh, process oriented master oriented but the idea was that we've we've kids did kids honestly don't care about winning they really i mean they do they keep score they know what's happening and everything but if you watch a group of kids play in total free play with no adult interruption what you'll see is you'll see a group of kids that will self-correct like you said they, they could a team could be winning eight nothing in a pickup game and they'll stop and go okay 
you know, Mikey, you go over there, Susie, you come to our team, Gina, you go to their team, uh, and you guys play one up and, and they'll fix it because it's boring to win seven, nothing. And it's not fun to lose seven. So they kids like to win, but they also want to create that competition, that challenge. And so the problem is, is as adults, we became fixated on winning was the best way to measure whether sports was working for our kids. And again, for me, sports worked for my kids just by that moment alone in karate. So I started looking at this whole win at all costs mentality and what winners do. And it's, it becomes very selfish. It becomes end oriented. Everything is focused on the outcomes. It's all about who, what they get instead of who they become along the way. And so I started juxtaposing that with this, the mentality of like the New Zealand all blacks and the golden state warriors and the, and the women's uh, United States world cup team of the nineties. And, and even up through now, this mentality of, you know, it's these, these ultra competitors who cherish the challenge. They'll, they'll seek out the best possible challenge they can. They'd rather be in a, you know, a, a zero, zero 90th minute, you know, uh, body blow type of match than be winning seven, nothing. They, uh, the warrior mentality is this uh, mentality of somebody that, doesn't want to be comfortable. They want to get out of their comfort zone. They want to be pushed beyond their limits and they cherish their competitors. And so I started juxtaposing the warriors, not winners. I started using psychological constructs. And the first one is locus of control. And so winners typically are chasing something outside of themselves and they're usually chasing it because of people around them. It's the carrot stick mentality, right? So we're either performing for others to get rewards or to avoid some kind of punishment. In, in, in our world, right? And whether it's social media and we're excited and we want to be able to share what we've won and the punishment is the fact when somebody else wins and we feel like trash, you know, because somebody's making comments on social media, which we see all the time. But locus of control, when we remove locus of control outside of people, they burn out on something. They really don't want to compete. They don't want to do it. There's, there's research out there that says when you, when you, uh, when you control what kids eat, they've actually, I was just looking at a research project. When, when we tell kids exactly what to eat and when to eat and everything, they don't feel any control over the eating process. They don't care. Uh, there's been a research project. And, and so we wonder why kids have, you know, these, they don't want to eat at certain times. I think it's because they don't have control over it. Um, or a better one is researchers started taking activities that kids love to do and they would reward them for doing them. And what they found was the kids got bored with the activity because the reward moved that locus of control outside of the athlete. So that's the first one. A warrior has an internal locus of control. They are in, that person is in full control over the experience, the process, and everything they're doing. Nobody else outside of them controls their happiness, their joy, or the process themselves. They look to others for help and guidance, like beacons on the pathway, but they are the one walking the path. It is about what's inside of them. The second one is the motivation factor, which links in with locus of control. Intrinsic versus extrinsic. Do we do something because we inherently like it and it's something inside of us that we enjoy? Or again, do we do it because it's because of some factors that are extrinsic to that activity? And youth sports has become very extrinsic when we start looking at national rankings and trophies and getting college scholarships. It becomes an extrinsic activity. Are we playing youth sports to go to get a college scholarship? Is that really the end goal? That's a very extrinsic. Or are we playing youth sports to be with our friends, to have fun, to, to learn some new skills, to feel challenged, all those pieces of the puzzle that Amanda Visick talks about in the 81 fun factors and in the, in the fun maps, because that's very intrinsic. And so you, what you'll see is these warrior athletes, everything is very intrinsic for them. They do what they do because they love it. The Golden State Warriors are a prime example. One of their 
four core values is joy. Joy is an extremely intrinsic emotion and construct. It is something that happens inside of you. You can't even show people, you know, other than being demonstrative, what joy you can show them what it maybe looks like, but you can't show them what it feels like for you. That's a very intrinsic thing. And yet here it is, you know, one of the dynasties, possibly one of the greatest historical dynasties in basketball and joy is one of their core values. So is awareness. Uh, I think it's a uh, mindfulness actually. Uh, so that's the other piece of it. And then there's that competitive nature. And this is the big one that really, really drives it home for me. We have somehow decided that comp- competition and competitive competitive means vanquishing our enemies and dis- hating our enemies and doing whatever it takes to beat them to the point where we're talking million dollar payoffs and faking pictures to get our kids into college. When that stuff starts happening, we have completely missed the boat on, on, on the, whole, the whole growth process for our kids. It's never been about that. Com- competition, the root word for it is, is Latin, competere, and it means to strive together. I need strong opponents for me to get better. I don't want to vanquish my enemies. I want to cherish the challenge of great competitors because they may beat me today. But if you beat me today, you have sharpened my own weapons by, by giving me your very best. I will someday beat you. And if I don't, that's my goal is every time I step on the field is to get closer to you each and every time. And if you look through history, some of the famous athletes who've talked about growing up and competing against best friends from childhood and they're still competing against each other. It's all about that piece of the puzzle where it's like yes they're competitors but they know that each time they compete against each other they're making each other better it's that strive together mentality that also breeds that teamwork mentality that you see in groups like the golden state warriors and the new zealand all blacks and the women's world cup u.s national team is there is this realization that even though there are 20 of us and only 11 of us get on the field i'm only as good as my teammates who push me each and every day so we need to strive together so competition and training is what creates this amazing team that we have in games. And that was really the big one for me. And of course, then there's the mindset piece that everybody's seeking that perfection. Winners are seeking that perfection, that in this, the perfect season, you know, uh, you know, hitting for the cycle, all of that. But when you interview, and I'm always collecting data on this because I, I, I just saw one the other day and pulled an article aside because it was another one about an athlete who sought perfection and then was just so depressed afterward. When you spend your life wanting to win a Super Bowl, and they've done this with Super Bowl winning athletes. They win the Super Bowl. That was the lifelong dream. And they said they were depressed by they were depressed by the time they got on the plane ride home from the Super Bowl because they thought it would be more. They thought it would feel different. They thought, I don't know, that the world would change. They'd see in 3D or you know, or, or not 3D, but they'd see in these ultra colors or something, you know, and it didn't. It was just another day. And so for for a that's a, that's that perfection seeking. But for people who seek excellence, they're not worried about getting to somewhere. They're worried about every day being a little bit better than the person they were. And it's a very individual thing, which means every kid can reach their own excellence. And every day they can reset the, the meter and cha- change what their excellence is. And it's not being judged by people outside of them. It's being judged by them. And that becomes that whole growth mindset. I can be better at something if I just work hard, find the tools I need, look for the resources that help me get there. And I show up every day to compete, compete at my very best. And so for me, warriors are competitors. They're not winners. They're competitors. And a lot of times competitors end up winning. But I'd much rather be this competitor than be a winner who doesn't have that competitive spirit, who doesn't have that joy 
who doesn't who doesn't have the in, intrinsic motivation to do these things, who doesn't think that every day I can get better, and who doesn't see his opponents and his teammates as these amazing people on the journey with him up up the side of the mountain. And some uh, some fantastic stuff there, Reed. I <laughs> I loved uh, everything you just said, and um, it you know it made me think of the times uh, where I've seen players that have been on teams that are winning. But that, you know, that three-letter word that you just said, joy, was not present, right? That um, they felt it, it was truly joyless when they won. And they were, you know, competitive. They were, um, you know, succeeding on the field, but they weren't having that joy. And I think that's really important. And, um, you know, maybe that, that is kind of a, a, a good segue or, or pivot into this idea of culture when it comes to teams or environments or that coaches are trying to create or players are trying to be a part of. And I think it was actually through listening to, uh, to your podcast that, um, so I did not know uh, admittedly much about rugby. And then this whole idea of the, uh, you know, New Zealand all blacks um, in this, uh, you know, sweep the sheds and uh, you know, sort of concept they have. And, I don't know, maybe if you want to just kind of take a, you know, a pass on the word culture and kind of what that means to you when you're leading your teams or teams that you've worked with in the past or even advice you could offer to other coaches out there of how to approach that, you know, very big idea of building a desirable, you know, team culture. Sure. So, and and I started, interestingly, I started my career in my first degree is in organizational behavior, which is basically business psychology. And so we studied a lot about cultures and communication in like airline cockpits and ERs and, and nuclear control rooms and the cultures of businesses. And, you know, when you have a, for instance, when you ha- have a big merger or corporate takeover, you're meshing, you know, two or three, two cultures together and it can really kill a company if you're not very careful about it. And so I came from that perspective and then getting into sports and looking at culture, we tend to always try to boil culture down to values or buzzwords or team building games, you know, it's, that's the one that always, that's my, the article I wrote for soccer today recently, where it was show me your work was because, you know, anybody can Google a bunch of team building games and, and do that stuff, but that's not really building culture. That's sort of like the Hawthorne effect. Yeah. They're going to perform really well for you that day and probably the next couple, but when the placebo wears off, you know, and so, and I was the same way. I thought, Oh, if I do these things with my athletes, then, then I'm going to create culture. The thing about culture is it's not really that we create it. It's that it's always there. It's, it's a living, breathing organism because culture arises when people are together and begin to share values and share beliefs and share uh, goals and, and share, you know, you look at culture just in general and it's, it's a, there are always these shared pieces of, of a larger puzzle within groups that creates that culture of them. And within teams, that's a microcosm of, of cultures. And so it's a living, breathing thing that, we can't just do a few team building games or I can't slap some words on a website and say, these are our values and this is our culture. And the New Zealand all blacks caught on to that very often and realized culture was a way of life. And because it's a living, breathing being, that means that every day we feed it every day. We, um, every day we feed it every day. We have an opportunity to grow it and cultivate it and, and nurture it in certain ways, or we can totally ignore it and it will grow on its own. It'll still grow. But then we don't know what kind of culture we're going to have. And we've seen that before with people who put their head in the sand and all the culture will naturally exist. So when we're working on culture, we really have to think through how are we interacting with each other? 
what are these shared values and these shared and this purpose driven mentality that we have and what 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 is leading our cause and and who are the guardians within our culture and think about the touch points who are the other people that touch our culture in a club you may have a team culture but a culture is not made up of just the players and it's not made up of just the players and coaches the parents have an impact on that culture because it's living breathing they can actually impact that influence that culture the club directors the other coaches the other teams the referees, anybody that has a touch point with your culture has an opportunity to either spark or spoil it. And so when you start defining culture in this way that it's this living, breathing being that I have to give attention to each and every day with my athletes and with my, and with my teammates, and I have to make sure that the cult, the other people that are getting touch points with the culture are giving, creating positive influence on it. Then you become a little bit more aware of the fact that we can't just say, oh, I don't have time to work on culture. You become aware of the fact that, no, you need to work on it each and every day. And it, it's simple things such as by habits that you create. What are the habits of excellence that you have within your team? What do they do when they first show up at practice? How do they address each other? What do they do when practice is over? Do you teach them things like John Wooden did with the perfect way to put a pair of socks on us? As silly as that seems, he knew that players that don't have blisters are players that are on the court playing. But he was also teaching habits of excellence to these players. How do you begin your day? How do you end your day? How do you interact with the people around you? And if you start to really focus in on that, what happens is you're going to have negative influences internally and externally. But because you have values at your core and you have these habits of excellence that, that are these physical manifestations of your values. I'll give you an example. Gratitude is a value that our team wants to have, right? Well, how do you, how do you, how do you get, especially an eight-year-old, how do you get an eight-year-old to define gratitude? What, what is gratitude? What, what does it look like? What, do you, what, what does it mean? They have no idea. But if you tell them that we always thank our parents or whoever our loved ones for bringing us to the game and we always thank the referee for a great game and that's gratitude we're thankful for the things that people around us do for us then they can show you what gratitude looks like it becomes this habit of excellence so now they're turning core values into core behaviors and you ask your players what's a core behavior that we have on our team oh we we do this and what does that signify it means we we're grateful athletes so they start to live it when you have these values that are driving it with these habits of excellence, when you have a negative influence from the outside or internally, we will return to these values and ask, is this how we do things with our organization? Is this how we do things with our team? Does this fit with what we all agree that we believe in? Does this fit with our shared vision and our values and our purpose? Because if not, then it's a learning opportunity for us to grow through that. If it does fit, then we absorb that into our culture as well. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what I was going to say for, for folks listening to this, if they haven't read your soccer today, uh, com article that they, I'll be sure to put that in the show notes, but, um, for to go and check it out. Uh, and I'm actually, I had called it up, uh, before you jumped on Reed, because I was going to ask you about that. And it's so fitting for the time of year, uh, that we're going through here in the Pittsburgh area that it's, uh, you know, tryout season for the fall. And I can't tell you how many, uh, you know, presentations and, you know, people from different clubs, they get up there and they sort of give you the word soup of all the things you want to hear. And here's what we're going to do and blah, 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 blah. And I loved in that article that you really asked the question that I think a lot of us are probably thinking, you know, but can you show me your work and not just, you know, championships and wins and losses and, and things like that. And, um, you know, in doing this sort of uh, tour of, uh, of looking at clubs locally, you know, it, it was funny. I, we went to this one club and the transparency that they demonstrated as a club far different than other clubs locally. 
And I found it incredibly refreshing just for the fact that um, I had a chat with uh, one of their administrators afterwards. And I said, none of the other clubs that we had been to were doing what you're doing. And he said, we have nothing to hide. He goes, we're proud of who we are. We're proud of what we stand for. We want people to know that we're not going to sort of waver and kind of be the, you know, the, the flavor of the day or the, you know, uh, flavor of the month or whatever. And, um, I just think that was really refreshing to hear that because, you know, it turns into this wine and dine. How can I impress you? Um, you know, like I said, I'm going to say all the right things and put my best foot forward and, you know, really hope that you join our club. But then the minute you join and now you've put your deposit down, then it's just going to go back to the way it was before. And uh, for me, that is so damn frustrating as a parent because it's like, God, like, you know, uh, I wish more people, I wish more parents were more discerning and sort of um, even willing to ask some of the difficult questions of clubs, especially in the soccer community, just because I think there's a, a lot that are um, good at fooling people, I, I guess is how I would describe it. So I'm on a rant there, but uh, uh, no, I love it. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but you probably have experienced that, you know, in uh, whether it be soccer or another sport or, or whatever. Uh, I, I'm curious. So uh, make a make a left turn here. So you've mentioned a, a couple different um, people that I find or have found fascinating, um, you know, in my life. John Wooden. Um, I told somebody recently that, you know, as a kid growing up, I, I knew John Wooden was a great basketball coach. I had no idea John Wooden's wisdom. Um, and I've sort of recently, and I, I don't know where I've been in the, you know, almost 40 years of my life, felt like I've slept under a rock of some of these like really witty and sort of, um, you know, great uh, lines that he had. And there's one recently um, that was used in our coaching course about repetition. And I was like, man, that is like absolutely brilliant because I think in the soccer community, I mean, I see coaches all the time. They're looking for the greatest, shiniest, newest way to train players or coach players. And it's like, look, if you have a, a core philosophy, you believe in it and you repeat the hell out of it, you're probably going to be successful, you know? And that's very much a John Wooden ism. Um, you know, you mentioned the Golden State Warriors, you mentioned the New, New Zealand All Blacks, uh, the U.S. Women's National Team. Who do you admire? Um, or who is, you know, from your perspective, sort of uh, getting it right? Or man, you go, wow, like that person or that team really gets it in terms of like what they're trying to accomplish. What what team do I admire, huh? Uh, <laughs> Cincinnati Reds, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy. <laughs> that, well, that's kind of like cheering for the Pittsburgh Pirates. So, hey, it's all good, you man. Know how it is. Yeah, when we moved to San Diego, everybody said, sorry, we're not really a sports town. We have pro teams, but they kind of disappoint. I said, are you kidding me? I'm from Cincinnati. Bengals, Reds. <laughs> so, every year it starts out okay, and then I, we just stumble. Um, who do I – so uh, – I mentioned the Golden State Warriors, and and there are there are a, f a few reasons why I admire him. Steph Curry went to my college. I was a Davidson guy as as mm -hmm. well, and actually, uh, you know, those of us who were on the '92 um, uh, NCAA team sort of say, "Well, Steph Steph obliterated us because everybody forgot about us when he took his team as deep as he went in the, <laughs> in, the, in, the NCAA, in the basketball tournament." I was like, "Who?" <laughs> um, but so, but I really like I really like that team because they they built that culture around Steve Kerr's 
experiences as a player. And Steve was not, he wasn't a world beater. He wasn't a, he wasn't an, you know, a big time LeBron James, Michael Jordan, you know, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant type of player. He was a team player who had great values and had, had, it was very intelligent, was a great problem solver and knew how to work with his teammates. He was, he was a warrior. He was a true competitor and he had great upbringing through Phil Jackson who Phil Jackson, as you know, brought in the, the, the Eastern philosophy into basketball, which is really this mindfulness and joy and centeredness and self-awareness and, you know, all those pieces of the puzzle. And I, I admire them because Kevin Durant said he didn't go there to win championships. Yeah, that was a nice bonus, but he went there because they had something he'd never had in his life, which was a family. And I admire them because Draymond Green and somebody just posted on Facebook to me the other day about this. You know, he yells at refs and he's got a horrible attitude and everything like that. But he's now the first to admit my son taught me that that's wrong. My son has taught me to be a better man and I've made mistakes and I want to fix those. And I just read an article about how when he and Kevin Durant got in that tiff at the beginning of the season or in midseason and everybody said, oh, that's going to be the downfall of the team. Uh, he said he didn't apologize to Kevin Durant right away because he wouldn't have been genuine and he needed to go to him when it was genuine and he meant it and not just to shut everybody up. And that when he did that, he had the ability to put aside his ego. This is a guy that says every time he steps on the court, he's the greatest player ever to play because that's the only way you survive in the NBA, right? He was able to put that ego aside. when Kevin Durant said, um, don't, don't you, don't you come at me with those emotions. Don't you use your emotions as an excuse with me? Because everybody always says, oh, Draymond, that's just Draymond. He runs hot. That's just Draymond. He said, don't you use that as an excuse. Don't you let that be a crutch. Don't you use that as your out. And he said that was a big moment. That was a big growth moment for him. To see this guy do a total 180 from the guy that screams at referees and flips people off and everything like that, you know, all the to, – to, to being self-aware and self-reflective enough and, and egoless enough to take that from Kevin Durant and say, wow, he's right. I, I should not have that easy of an out. I should hold myself accountable for my emotions, even in those tough moments. So that's, that's one of the teams I admire. I, 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 grew up, uh, I grew up really loving the women's World Cup team of the 90s. I got lucky. I trained. Being in Cincinnati, Michelle Akers, one of her trainers, was my coach in Cincinnati, Paul Rockwood. And at the time, she was Michelle Akers' stall. And Robbie Stahl and Paul were best friends. And so I spent a couple summers traveling around doing camps for post-to-post -post soccer camps and then for Rock Sox soccer camps. And Michelle would come into town and train. She, at the time, I think, was living in Central Florida. And we had a camp there every year for two weeks. We did camps. And so I was like a junior counselor where there were a group of us who would go from camp to camp around the country. And Michelle would work in the times between the sessions. And we were her cannon fodder. She'd train with us. And you talk about a competitor. I don't think people understand. I know her records are all being broken by the Mia Hams and the, um, and the Abby Wambachs and all that. But you don't understand. She, she had half a career because she got sick. And, and then she played through that. This, this person was one of the most amazing competitors I've ever been around to watch the way she competes and her precision and her seeking mastery. It wasn't about getting it done. It was about getting it right. And she was the, the true definition of it's not what you get when you arrive. It's who you become along the way. And so I became such a I'm such a fan of her and the rest of that team because she I was you know, we we all thought she was, you know, she was the bee's knees. So we all followed her around. We're all 16, 17, 18 years old, you know, and and uh, um, and she would talk about her teammates. And then, of course, that was that whole that's that 
that group, that 1990 group is the group that, that bred this whole mentality in the U S women's team where it was like, they carried that the servant leadership. So a new, a rookie would come into camp and the veterans would carry their bags and the rookie would be like, well, why are you carrying my bag? I'm, I'm the rookie because we're all teammates here and we're all in this together. And so that's a team I really admire. And that was, you know, in the work of Tony DeChico with that team of, of catching them being good. Um, it doesn't really fall on one team to be honest with you, Jason. It's it's, I see things that certain individuals or certain teams do in a moment. And I just absolutely love that. You know, I just, I just, I, I love the, you know, Scott, what Scott Frost is doing with Nebraska with, we don't yell at our players and we don't cuss and you know, all that stuff. And so that those are really the people I admire is the people who are trying to, to walk this pathway of this values led purpose driven organization. That's putting com- competing at all times, ever win at all costs. When do you think it uh, it changed for you? Um, you strike me as a incredibly self aware and um, uh, you know just a, a very thoughtful and uh, uh, you know emotionally intelligent coach. Reed, and that when did that change for you? Was it uh, some of in you know your educational work, your own experiences? Um, you know, uh, when did that uh, you know if a uh, uh, switch was flipped or, you know, something like that? Or do you feel like you're always that way? Oh, I was not always that way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, it, and unfortunately it wasn't a switch that flipped. It's like, uh, it's like trying to, it's, it, it's, it's like carving the grand Canyon. It takes a very long time and it takes a lot of patience and it's, it's a drop at a time, you know, to carve it. And that's sort of like, to this day, I'm still, it's still being carved. Um, I don't think we ever become master. I don't think we ever become the very best at our craft. I think we're part of a craft that mastery is what we seek and we can master portions of it. But coaching is something that we'll, we'll always be working at, you know, it's just, it's such an endless journey for us. It's, it's, it's that learning journey. And so for me, there wasn't a seminal moment. There were just a tons of moments where I had this strong awareness over something that was happening. And it could have been that, you know, when I was coaching high school soccer and I had, components i loved my players i they knew i loved them i we had core values and we we turned those core values into core behaviors i was raising young men and these are the kind of guys that you know 15 years from actually what am i 10 years past it now but you know in the next i'm getting graduation announcements and and invitations to weddings and things like that so i know i did that right but i was also i wore a visor at the time and i didn't know it but they they would call it the flip and when i would get mad at a ref or something like that i would flip my hat on the ground and I look back at that and I'm so embarrassed. And there was one particular game where the coach, where the referee made an awful call. And all I asked him, I, I called him over calmly and asked him to explain it and everything like that. And he got, got that attitude with me. I make the calls. I said, I'm not questioning. I just want to know, can you give me the reasoning behind it and all like that? And he said, no, I don't have to give you any reason. You can go sit down on the bench and shut up. And so I turned and flipped my hat at the bench and he tossed a yellow on me. And it was an embarrassing moment for me, even though everybody in the crowd was like, what a jerk. Because it was like – what is that? What lesson does that teach my, you know, my athletes? Um, there's times when I'm with my kids and they'll do something like my son was, we were arguing over his homework one time and he, and I was very frustrated because he wasn't turning it in. He was doing it, but he wasn't turning it in. And we were, I was very frustrated with his responses and he stops and cups his, or, you know, presses his hands together. Like, you know, prayer, prayer, like position right in front of his lips. And he takes a deep breath and he says, I, I can see you're frustrated, dad. And I'm like, Wow. <laughs> And that's a moment of self-awareness. Like here I am getting heated and he's the one that's taking the deep breath and calming himself down. And so I'm still working on it, but I would say that there was a point I had a team that was probably the greatest team I ever coached and they won a state cup 
And it was a goal of ours for 18 months. And we were heartbroken the first time and in the rain in an unbelievable game uh, where we got clipped by a team that we'd beaten two or three times before in the semifinals. And it broke our hearts. And I said, well, if we're going to make this a goal, then we're going to, we're gonna, it's a goal, but it's an outcome goal. So we got to create some process goals around it. And we got to really find our joy and everything like that. And we went on this terror and it was, you know, I don't remember what was we, we were like 50 and one or two in two years and 18 months. I mean, we just, we won every tournament. We beat every team and, and it was them. This group of young men were such amazing players. And the whole time I'm hanging on for the ride, trying not to mess them up, trying to instill these values, trying not to get them too focused on the win. But these kids, that's all they knew was to win, you know? And, and the day we won the state cup, the team that beat us, they beat us four, four, one, just, or yeah, four, one, just a couple weeks prior. I mean, they, they handled us to use a antiquated term. They, they manhandled us pretty badly. And our boys showed up for the game and they were loose. The coach from the other team said, what did you do with your boys this morning? What'd you give them? Look at them. They're, they're loose. My guys are peeing their pants and you're, we just beat you and your guys are like, man, no big deal. And they played that way. They played so loose the whole game. They just were so joyful and smiling all the time. And they win it. And I'm standing there and I'm like, we did it. I did it. I, I did it. I finally won a state championship. I finally, I finally, like this was something I always wanted to do. I didn't do it when I played. I finally won a state championship. And a dad comes up and puts his arm around me and says, the, we were watching another ceremony because we were waiting our turn. And the coach was taking all the credit on the mic and everything. And the dad said, isn't it horrible that this coach is just robbing or something? He said, made a comment about that fact that the coach was robbing the boys of their moment by taking all the credit. And it was like a punch in the gut. This, this 18 months was about them. They had nothing to do with me. And yet here I was. And I just, I, it was, that was a really a big moment for me. That was a moment where I think everything shifted. I, I ended up shortly thereafter going to a smaller club where we were, you know, I had an opportunity to build it from scratch with them and everything like that. And I, I left that team behind, which broke my heart, absolutely broke my heart. But that was sort of like, then I did the TEDx and then I met Jane Nelson and we wrote the tool cards and then I started tour. And, and so that was a seminal moment that that moment of that realizing that that state championship one, it was, it didn't matter. It really won't matter 20 years from now to those boys. But what we did during that season will matter. The words I used with them and the things that we did and the culture we built and the memories we created, that's what's going to matter to those boys 20 years from now. And, and again, the fact that it was nothing, it had nothing to do with me. Like all I was, was, you know, the, the definition of coach is from coach vehicle. All I was, was a vehicle that transported him from A to B. I had no bearing and I had no right to take that moment and say, I want a state championship. No, they did. And I was just, I was just a, a, a you know, a collaborator with them. I think that's uh, probably one of the reasons why uh, football or soccer is such a, uh, uh, you know, especially during championship presentations, right? You never see or very rarely ever see a manager, an owner, um, you know, front and center for a, uh, a trophy presentation, right? It's about the players. It's about the team captain. It's about um, the men or women, you know, leading that team. And, you know, I've been thinking of the Champions League, uh, not that long ago, but, um, you know, just to, to watch that, I mean, people revere, uh, Jurgen Klopp, but I mean, yes, he was happy, but you know, he wasn't a part of that initial lift of the trophy. And, um, you know, there's something, something really neat about that, I think. And, um, you know, and, and I guess 
you know, maybe that's a, a cultural thing in terms of soccer being different than some American sports. Um, but tell me about how that, you know, propelled you into the work you're doing now and, and tell the audience a little bit about, um, you know, the, the things that you're working on and, uh, and kind of how that led you to, uh, to where you are currently. Sure. So that, that team, um, we produced that particular group of kids. We produced a couple who are playing in the youth national futsal team, a couple who have gone on to nationals for, for that team and other teams and played in the national league and, uh, and who are, you know, fa all fast track to college. And we've got some that have been identified in, in the national, you know, in the national team system. And so a, a tremendous group of athletes, but what matters most is one of those kids came almost late to a championship game for a tournament because he had a tryout for the Cincinnati junior symphony. And he and I, his dad and I said, teamed up on him and said, uh, uh, you're going to the symphony because you're going to win all kinds of tournaments in your lifetime. You're 12 years old. You're going to have a trophy case full of stuff, but this is a memory you can tell your grandkids about this is, you know, another one of them, uh, did a, uh, you know, is this award-winning essay writer at his school and, and, you know, and, 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 when I look back and, and think about, I've got their, the Jersey they signed for me at the end of that season at two seasons, actually. Uh, every time I read a name on there, I, I have a memory of a practice or a memory at a hotel lobby or out at, out to dinner with them or standing at the fields between games. Cause we would all hang out between games under the tents and stuff. And that's really, that's like, that propelled me. And, and so I got off track because I just, I really loved that. I moved on from that team and I had an opportunity to help a club that it was one of the oldest clubs in Cincinnati, but they were also one of the smallest and they're right in the heart of the city and everybody was getting big around them and they wanted to stick to their guns. They didn't want to be a big mega club. They wanted to be a values led club a star soccer club. And we did. And, and that you talk about tryouts. That's what we would tell people. If you want to try out for a club, come to a tournament and watch us play. We, we, uh, we list on social media where all of our teams are playing. I mean, go watch our teams decide if that fits, go watch your, the coach who might coach your kid coach before you say what, listen to the parents, interact with them. Don't tell them that you're interested in the team. So they don't, or they're not on their best behavior. Cause, cause we wear what we talk about. We live and breathe the values that we believe in. And from there, my wife said, you know, honey, the, you've talked your whole life about how it can be different. It should be done a different way. And the research says this, and, and, you know, I learned in my degrees, this, and I learned through my lifetime, this, and she's like, and you've told me so much, you need to go do a TEDx. So I did a TEDx and I did it while I was at star soccer club and that TEDx pushed me into a different realm. And I can remember saying to her right before the TEDx, would it be crazy if actually I actually did well at this TEDx and maybe I had the opportunity to find a bigger stage and maybe share my, my uh what i've discovered from other people because i'm standing on the shoulders of giants with the rest of the world and then i just looked at her the other day and said i'm doing that so that put me into a speaking track where i traveled the world working with clubs and organizations and governing bodies and any group that would have me in schools and you know charter schools etc and i would work with the parents on how to develop this these warrior brains in our kids and these this this competitors mentality and I would work with coaches on sort of like coaching efficacy and what it means to be transformational in your coaching. And, you know, the, the beyond the X's and O's and more on the software side of our athletes. And I would work with the organizations to set up coach development plans. And that all pushed me into what I'm doing this year, which is I realized, and that's why I wrote the show me your work thing. We need solutions and we need to, we need to stop talking about what we've done wrong and talking about what we should do and doing it. 
And we also need people who are willing to do it, who have the track record to do it. And like I said, if you're going to pick a club, go watch them at a tournament when they don't realize that you're watching them. If you're going to, if you're going to have somebody come in and work with your organization, make sure they can accomplish what they say they can accomplish, you know, make sure there's sustainability there and there's solutions. And so this year has all been all about that. So I launched raising excellence because I believe that I lost my way as a coach and I started cutting kids because they didn't fit my team. And we all do. You know, I mean, you don't fit my culture. You're not fast enough. You're not skilled enough. You're not this. So uh, I'm going to cut you. The problem with that is I, um, I miss out on an opportunity to shape lives when I do that. And I rob those kids of an opportunity to have their lives shaped. And so raising excellence is about the fact that there is a place for every kid in sport. And as coaches and teachers, our job is when we have kids in front of us is to teach each one of those kids how to raise their excellence. Where is your bar? It's not me that sets it. It's not based on some time, arbitrary time or arbitrary rank or arbitrary team that you're on. It's your own personal excellence. And then once you figured out what your excellence is, what your magic is, you need to wake up every day and chase it. And as a coach, that's my job is to help each kid define what makes them great, what their superpower is. And then each and every day, teach them how to chase after that, relentlessly pursue that excellence. And if we do that, then uh, how much better would our society be? If we see, if we have 27 million kids playing sports, but we cut another 10, what if 37 million kids in the next generation, because we don't cut those kids, we find a way to help teach them to chase their own excellence. And if they do not leave our team, they still know how to chase excellence. That's the beauty. If they leave the sport, we've taught them a skill that they can take away from it. Not just how to juggle a ball, but how to chase their excellence. And so that's what I'm doing with Raising Excellence. I do a lot of workshops. I work with um, organizations where we do coach development. I become, um, I'm in the coach development and mentor space. So I'm launching a program called Coaches Realm, where we're going to do uh, uh, resources, experts, accountability, learning, and mastery with coaches. And I'm working with a person out of uh, Australia. We're going to do it together. And we'll be two-on-one mentors of coaches where they'll do weekly and daily texts and calls with us and we'll develop their own long-term coaching development plan, what they want to learn, what, what aspects of their, their coaching game are missing and how we can backfill those and help them become their very best because if we're expecting of our athletes, we should expect it of our coaches. Uh, and uh, because of that, U.S. sailing and soccer shots are both the tool cards launched the soccer shots opportunity by positive discipline tool cards that I did with Jane Nelson. Um, and both of those organizations have me working with their coaches, helping them craft their own long-term coaching development plans and helping them understand what it means to be a quality transformational coach and bringing in some of these other quote unquote soft skills that they don't always, you don't always learn in the courses or that you don't learn in the process of, of, you know, coaching sport, you have to learn them in outside sources. That's, uh, <laughs> awesome. Uh, and I've, uh, spent some time on your website and, um, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, the coaching mentorship and, uh, some of the other projects you have going on. I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And, and especially in a world in a day where, especially for, for young people, uh, problem solving skills and coping skills are probably never more needed than they are today. And, uh, you know, I believe sport, and in this case, soccer, because um, that's the sport that I love the most, uh, can be that place where a kid can learn, you know, those coping skills and problem-solving skills. But, I mean, there's obviously countless sports out there and ways they can do that. And uh, I love what you said about the kid, about the symphony, um, you know, having been a, 
a not very good alto saxophone player in a previous life that, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I just think that that's really neat because I, I think sometimes read that um, parents especially get into this mindset that little Johnny, little Susie is only X. They're only a soccer player. They're only a basketball player. They're only, you know, whatever we define them as. And that is literally one small sliver of the pie, right? They're a son, they're a daughter, they're a student, they're a friend, they're a, a nephew, they're a niece, they're a grandson, a granddaughter. I mean, whatever it might be, they're, um, you know, a neighbor. And that we forget about all these other things and want to, uh, you know, sort of propel them just in that one area where we see them in uh you know, I, I think it was during your TEDx, if I remember correctly. I hope I'm not crossing my wires here. But, you know, you'd ask the crowd something along the lines of, uh, you know, how many of you are professional athletes? And, um, you know, obviously, I don't think any hands went up. But how many of you were youth uh, athletes or played youth sports? And virtually everybody's hand went up. And, um, you know, just to show the impact that youth sports in a very positive way can have on people. And like I said, it goes back to the problem solving and the coping skills that I sort of, you know, those are sort of foundational philosophies I have that and want for my own kids and try to teach them those things every day, but they have to learn them on their own too. Um, so uh, if, if people want to follow along and, and join the movement and kind of be a part of what you're doing, um, how can they connect with you, Reed? Uh, probably the easiest way, sorry, the sound may have changed because I had to charge my phone a little bit and move over to, uh, <laughs> move off my mic. Um, no, all the good. easiest way is coach underscore read on Twitter. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Sorry. Um, coach underscore read on Twitter. You can also go to coach and read is spelled R E E D. And coachread.com, from there, you can find out about the Positive Discipline Tool Cards. You can find out about the Coach's Realm, uh, our think tank that we recently did, and, and other things like that, and find the podcast. Uh, I have a link to the podcast, Coaching Code. Um, those are the two easiest places. You can also email me if you want, read at Coach Reed. Uh, I don't mind um, chatting with people. As you know, Jason, we're all on a learning journey, so I feel like everybody I, I meet, I'm going to learn something from them. So I try to interact with people as much as possible. Yeah. Love that. And I love that, uh, how accessible you make yourself and, um, you know, uh, talk about coming full circle for me. And like I said, just doing things around the house and listening to the coaching code and learning of your work. And, um, when I launched this podcast late last year, thought to myself, you know, you were on my list of people that, oh my gosh, like we have to showcase your work to, uh, you know, the coaching community because, um, you know, I, I think there is that chance just to, to make a massive impact on young people. And sometimes all the other stuff, the political stuff, the money, the, you know, all the things that we get tied up in and worry about and that I sometimes, you know, bitch about on, on Twitter or whatever. Yeah, those are side effects. But at the core, it's all about influencing and, and changing lives of, uh, of young people. That's certainly why I coach and, um, uh, you know, know a number of other coaches that feel the same way. So, uh, Reed Malpe, thank you so much for, for being on the latest episode of the, the on the touchline podcast and, um, really enjoyed the conversation and would love to have you back sometime. Oh, I'd love to be back. I gotta tell you, I was really excited and that's why I reached out to you and said, Hey man, I would love to get on and chat with you because 
I, I get geeky about the work you're doing and love what you're doing. And, and uh, I hope you keep doing it because we're all working in silos and the more we get a chance to work together, the better. And uh, um, so, and like I said, man, it's all about standing on the shoulders of giants, right? It's, it's, we can see so far because we stood on the shoulders of giants. And so I'm learning from you, you're learning from me and it's, it's just, it, like you said, it all comes full circle. So uh, it was an honor to talk with you. A massive thank you to Reed Maltby for being the latest guest on the On the Touchline podcast. And Reed, I'm very grateful that you and I have been able to get connected to one another and learn a little bit uh, from one another. Absolutely admire your work and the transformative nature um, of what you're trying to do with coaches and, and those in positions of power to make an impact on young people's lives. Sport can truly be one of the greatest teachers um, for any of us and for anyone that is coached for any length of time or if anyone's a teacher or anything like that, you know just the impact that sport can have on a child to teach them perseverance, to teach them how to work through adversity, coping skills, problem solving skills. It's massive. And um, yeah, I can't thank you enough for, for the good work you're doing. So this will be a two-episode week of the On the Touchline podcast, so you can expect a new episode this coming Saturday. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, connect with us on 12 different platforms. Whatever your favorite podcasting platform is, uh, definitely make sure you subscribe to the show. That way you never miss a new episode. And last but not least, before we close up shop, please tell a friend in the coaching community or a player or someone who just genuinely loves football or uh, soccer culture or coaching. Uh, hopefully this podcast adds a little bit of value to what they're trying to do um, in their professional development. All right, guys, I can't thank you enough. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we just went over 14,000 listens for the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. And I'll catch you guys real soon. This has been the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. <laughs>